Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week, what the heck happened in Iowa? We're sleepwalking into this scenario where we all have to take this giant risk. Then, how worried should we be about coronavirus? And what does it say about China? There is a story here of, like, this is how China blows up the world. And finally, a recommendation. You kind of understand just how big it's going to become and just how politically influential it's going to become in a way that she, the character, doesn't. This year's Iowa caucus was a mess. There were technical problems, which meant the state didn't release any vote counts on Monday night, and everyone was left confused about the state of the Democratic race. We are taping this on Tuesday afternoon when it seems that Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg did best in Iowa, followed by Elizabeth Warren. And today we're going to talk about both the race and about Iowa's role in the process. Let's start with the race itself. Michelle, you spent much of last week in Iowa working at the beginning and then getting sick at the end of the week. I'm sorry to hear. Um, but Ross and I are interested to hear what you found when you were uh, still up and about going to rallies. So, yeah, I started out the week in Iowa going mainly to Bernie Sanders rallies, although I also followed Pete a little bit. Um, And then, you know, I got really sick, spent three days in my hotel room with the flu waiting to be well enough to fly home. Little did I know that that was a portent of how everything in Iowa was going to go. (laughs) But I I mean, I guess what I saw with Bernie is, um, you know, that he has a, a movement behind him, maybe alone among all these candidates. So we have this almost total bifurcation in the party between, you know, sort of where the grassroots and where the energy is and where, you know, the kind of cultural ferment is, right? I mean, people have been joking about Bernie Palooza because you had all these indie bands coming into Iowa to play Bernie rallies. And then all the institutional support and all the kind of establishment of the party on the other side. It's interesting, you know, Ross, you've been talking about this notion that Biden would be the the figure who's, you know, got 25 percent support and benefits from a fractured field. Um, But it's also possible that Bernie's going to be that figure. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, based on what we think we know about Iowa's results and what we think we know is that Biden badly underperformed his polls So far, the evidence from Iowa, and I use the term evidence loosely, (laughs) is that maybe the pundit instinct was right. And this was, you know, this was Michelle's instinct, certainly, since she's the one of us who's been out the most in the field. And my basic sense is that, you know, you have to analyze the Iowa results in terms of the results themselves and in terms of how they interact with the, pardon my language, there's no other word but shit show to describe (laughs) What happened? But to have this combination of him near the top, Biden apparently collapsing, and then this haze of confusion over the whole process, 
I think, yes, yeah, sets him up pretty well to sort of keep running his 20 to 25 percent campaign. So I think the combination of the fiasco and the outcome is pretty good for Bernie. I guess I want to argue against the Biden collapsing thesis um, because we know Biden is strongest among African-American voters uh, and we know he's also pretty strong among Latino voters. And Iowa is an almost all-white state. And so the idea that he underperformed in Iowa, and he certainly seems to have, I'm not, I'm not saying otherwise, to me, it, you can't actually say all that much about what this means until we get more diverse states voting. And it's why, as I reflected on what happened in Iowa, I realized I was actually happy about it. Because I don't really know what I'm rooting for from this field, but I definitely am rooting for Iowa, given all of its idiosyncrasies, not to be picking the nominee. And I'm not convinced Biden's collapsing. But, David, if you look at the polls, he's also really starting to tank. Um, or I don't know if tank is the right word, but he's going down in South Carolina, certainly compared to Bernie. And so, I mean, I find myself just livid, livid at the Biden campaign at whatever parts of the establishment urged him to get in because it seems like they foisted this zombie candidacy on the party where he had enough name recognition and kind of stature to suck away oxygen from less well-known candidates, but not enough energy and, frankly, um, capability to bring it home. He's put the party in this really terrible position where there aren't that many moderate alternatives. And so it seems very likely that Bernie is going to run away with this and then lose. I mean, Michelle, I'm sort of I'm sort of struck by how despairing you sound at the prospect of Bernie sort of rumbling, stumbling, tumbling his way to the nomination. Do you feel like have you bought into the thesis, which is not a crazy thesis, that he's going to lose to Trump? There are polls out there that show him doing relatively well against Trump. There are also polls about the unpopularity of socialism and large numbers of people saying they wouldn't vote for a socialist. And I think we don't know yet whether people know that Bernie identifies as a democratic socialist and discounts it or whether they just don't know. You know, again, the polls show that Bernie could do well. I have enormous trepidation, particularly about some of the districts like upscale suburban women voters who are not Bernie's base. And I would also say that early reports show that turnout wasn't great in the Iowa caucuses, which cuts against the claim that Bernie's going to be able to bring a lot more people into the process, right? That's one of the rationales for his campaign, the argument that what they lose in kind of upscale suburbanites, they will win in this sort of remade electorate. Speaking of those moderate districts, Michelle, Jonathan Chait in New York Magazine had this, I thought, devastating list of quotes from people on the left in the Democratic Party heading into the midterms, where they basically said, look at all these moderate candidates who inspire no one. They can't win. And basically, all those moderate candidates won in the midterms. And many of the Bernie-type left candidates lost you know, call it the establishment, call it moderate Democrats, wh whatever choice you want, it looks pretty bad. I mean, you're, you're set up right now going into New Hampshire with Pete Buttigieg, who is a very talented guy, but also a somewhat ridiculous figure as a candidate for president of the United States, as 
the sort of, you know, the not Biden alternative to Sanders. Amy Klobuchar, who I think we both agreed would have made a more plausible Democratic nominee, especially for those districts and those suburban female voters that Michelle is talking about, is pretty much knocked out by her performance. And so you've got Buttigieg who shows no capacity to win minority votes yet. You've got Michael Bloomberg lurking. Who's the moderate Who's the moderate candidate who can, you know, who who emerges out of this, not just to beat Trump, but in a way that consolidates the party and doesn't create some kind of, you know, total meltdown? It's Bloomberg. Okay, uh, this is all setting up uh, quite well for Bloomberg. It is. So let me make the case, and you guys can mock it. Uh, look, Bloomberg got in the race when Biden looked at his weakest, and then when Biden seemed to rebound over the last few months, uh, Bloomberg's chances looked uh, nil. I mean, if Biden does well, Bloomberg's finished. Um, but but if if the two of you are right that Biden's in something that looks like a free fall rather than my being right that we can't know uh, so long as pretty much only white people are voting, um, I agree with you. I don't think Buttigieg and Klobuchar uh, have a very good path. I mean, you look at their polling in South Carolina and among African-Americans more broadly, and it's still horrific. Most young people are voting either for Bernie or for Warren. Can you imagine a scenario more calculated to make them cynical and to cause them to withdraw from this race? Nope. That's the big downside. Uh, you've got a rich guy basically buying the nomination to to some extent. Um, I mean, obviously not totally. He'd be winning votes in this scenario as well. <laughs> but I think in that scenario, you do have a significant number of people who stay home or don't vote. And that's the risk in that scenario. And the question is... Even if Bloomberg isn't well-suited to actually capture the American center, as we talk about all the time, right? The actual American center is to Bloomberg's left on economics and well to his right on social issues. Americans don't really make decisions based on white papers and adding up all the issues. And Bloomberg sort of seems moderate. And so basically what Bloomberg would need to do is run a version – and this is Biden's strategy too, for that matter – run a version of the 2018 campaign where you get enough enthusiasm from young Younger people and more progressive voters, just from an anti-Trump perspective, uh, and then you you win those suburban moderates um, handily. I don't think it's impossible for Bloomberg to beat Trump head to head. I guess what I see, though, looking forward is when does the field consolidate to make it Bloomberg against Bernie? Because you know, Buttigieg is going to say that he won or quasi won. Iowa. He's going to do pretty well in New Hampshire, presumably. So he's going to say, look, I'm the moderate alternative here. Warren, presumably okay in Iowa, will presumably do okay in New Hampshire. And if it's this sort of scramble with delicate accumulation, there's every reason for her to stay in. And it, it just seems like the most likely thing then is you're headed for a scenario where Bloomberg is accumulating delegates for a contested convention. And for Bloomberg or anyone to hope to win it at a contested convention, I mean, it just seems like an epic world <laughs> historical nightmare. Like if Bernie goes into the convention having won more states than anyone else and with a plurality of delegates and the plan is for Michael Bloomberg to have come in and won a ton of delegates to deny him the nomination, that's not going to happen, right? No, it can't happen. And especially if you assume 
that another block of delegates in that scenario belongs to Elizabeth Warren, right? Right. And her and Bernie, the most likely scenario is that they combine forces. I mean, that's the thing. I just, I don't see any good ending to this fiasco that Democrats seem to have sleepwalked into. I mean, we all have to just kind of take this giant risk and hope that the young people whose time may have come kind of knows what they're doing. Well, Michelle, I think that's basically one of the two cases for optimism, which is that um, politics is really hard to predict. And there are uh, a bunch of reasons to think that Bernie actually might be a pretty good candidate to take on Trump. Um, And so maybe he gets the nomination and he's able to win. Uh, And I think you and I both would not be super alarmed at the idea of a Bernie presidency. No, I'd be thrilled at the... No, don't get me wrong. The idea of a Bernie presidency would be wonderful. Yeah. So, uh, and that's... And then I think the second case for optimism is that whether it's Biden being stronger than he looks in an all-white state or Bloomberg emerging, unlikely as that may seem, that that it still could be a more moderate nominee. And then I guess the third thing is just some kind of surprise, which is Warren stages a comeback. Buttigieg somehow gains support among African-Americans. But it's the first two to me seem to be the most likely um, more optimistic cases for the Democrats. And the interesting thing is it feels like actually New Hampshire isn't going to move this race that much because all the signs are that Bernie's going to win and so that we're then uh, still going to be roughly where we are about a week from now. Does that feel right to both of you? I mean, I think, again, depending on what comes out of the results, it could be a boost either for Pete or for or for Warren, you know, if, if one of them starts to look more viable based on what comes out of Iowa. Yeah, I think, I, I think New Hampshire could do a lot to tell us whether... Buttigieg has staying power and whether, as Michelle said, Warren can mount a comeback and sort of present herself again as an alternative to the Bernie Biden or Bernie Bloomberg showdown. But I guess I agree with you, David, in the sense I think South Carolina now is huge because it's the first place that tells us – I mean Nevada too. The Nevada-South Carolina combination tells us – Basically, one, is Biden still viable? And two, if he's not, where do minority voters go? So let's leave it there and take a quick break, and we will be right back. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book? talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com opinion. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. 
coronavirus has spread from the Chinese city of Wuhan to more than 20 countries around the world. Thousands of people have been infected, and several hundred have already died. In China and elsewhere, people have added a new item to their winter wardrobe, a face mask. The virus has raised serious public health questions. But I want to start with a more personal question for each of you, Ross and Michelle. How scared are you personally about this virus? Ross? Most of the time, not incredibly scared. Um, But, you know, every few days there will be – this is the the wonders of social media, right? There will be some – extremely long Twitter thread by some extremely competent sounding person making the case that, you know, this is all vastly worse than public health authorities want you to believe. Um, And, you know, not that we're all going to die, but that that there will be some sort of major panic in the United States and Western Europe over this within the next few weeks that will, you know, shut down schools and cities and sort of basically bring the Chinese situation to the Western world. And I think that's that's my biggest fear right now, not that not for my own life or the lives of my children, but that the spread will create conditions in our societies like conditions in China, even if the the actual death toll doesn't get that high. What about you, Michelle? I mean, look, I have the flu. I'm just getting over it. The flu is like a more serious disease by many accounts that kills a lot more people than coronavirus. And so, like Ross, I don't really have any fear about it for myself or my family. You know, I certainly don't trust this administration to manage a public health emergency. It's interesting. I mean, in some ways, it's the common theme between our two subjects this week, which is different kinds of institutional breakdown. And I've been really interested to see how these public health crises are different for China than almost anything else. It's just much harder for them to sort of bulldoze public opinion and just tell people that, you know, red is green and green is red because people are experiencing it themselves and the stakes are so high. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a general fog that surrounds the Chinese situation that I think is just is fundamentally different and unique to a totalitarian regime. You know, there aren't this sort of basic structures of social control in America that in turn create incentives to what you might call the sort of Chernobyl incentives, right? The incentives to avoid reckoning with a problem in the hopes that it goes away and to clamp down on information streams and then just sort of leave, you know, leave this sort of basic open question. There's no reason right now, I think, for anyone outside China to trust the information flow that we have from China right now. Although it's actually very different than than Chernobyl. I mean, they're certainly not underplaying the severity of this. You know, the kind of scale of the response and the intensity of the response must be itself kind of a cause for panic, right? You kind of think, is there something even even bigger here, given that they've basically shut down, you know, the world's biggest economy, you know, put whole megacities under lockdown. Michelle, you were just in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And David, a little bit before that, you took an extended trip to China, right? I did. And this was before, well before the coronavirus outbreak started. And you came back and wrote a column that I thought was pretty optimistic about the sort of basic stability of Chinese society, sort of abstracting from 
moral questions about the obvious wickedness of the regime. You sort of emphasized in the 10 years since you'd last been there the growth of a pretty stable and optimistic middle class. Um, and I mean how does that sort of – that feeling that you got sort of interact with something like this? Yeah, and I think your description of that column is fair. I think I was I was pretty optimistic on behalf of China's power, if not on behalf of what it meant for the world. Um, I mean, look, I think there are two uh, clear risks to uh, China's ascent as a world power. But the first is um, a subject, Ross, you've written about, which is this this massive coming demographic decline, the fact that the one-child policy is going to leave them with an aging society that's going to be really problematic uh, for the future. And then I think the second risk is, is one that uh, coronavirus really highlights, which is having authoritarian countries where you put no or little value on truth, uh, and the number one priority is keeping people in line, the number one domestic priority, uh, can really create serious vulnerabilities. And a public health crisis may be the most serious of those. And so I still look at China and I say, here's a country that on most measures of what it cares about, its ability to project military power in the Pacific, uh, the diversification of its economy, its ability to produce actually innovative companies like TikTok. By all those measures, China really has had quite a good decade. And the United States, the country it's chasing, has had a pretty bad decade. But um, it's definitely the case that, uh, that this isn't just a public health crisis, but it also really highlights what is a huge problem with authoritarianism, not just the moral part of it, which is the biggest problem with it, but but the kind of brass tacks, does it work problem? Yeah. I mean, it seems to me like it's, it is simultaneously a case study in how you could imagine the Chinese regime falling, right? That, you know, that, that you have sort of some internal disaster that basically produces a crisis of confidence that becomes sort of impossible for the regime to manage. And I think that's a pretty remote possibility overall. And I think one of the lessons of the last 20 years is just that there is much more stability to a certain kind of authoritarian quasi-capitalism than 1989 and 1991 made people assume. Um, but still, I think you can see in this how – if that happened, how it would happen, Right. And then related to that, I mean, there's also the more apocalyptic thing. And I'll, I'll wax apocalyptic a little bit. Like there is, you know, there is a story here of like this is how China blows up the world, right? You know, that you have this incredibly large, incredibly bound into the global economy hub that becomes sort of the obvious vector for the kind of black swan scenarios that we worry about when we worry about the actual fate of human civilization. Um, and th that's not going to be this virus, but sort of the combination of, you know, authoritarian control, deep complexity. You started asking how worried we are. I think this is a this is an event that reasonably triggers some deeper worries than just, you know, what's the balance of power between the U.S. and China? I do think the darkest scenario involves the problems with the current version of China, which is China is so much more powerful today than when Mao ran it and so much more connected to the rest of the world. And so you really could see, whether it's a war or a pandemic, you really could see how 
China's refusal to admit this was a problem when it first broke out, right? The fact that they punished doctors who were who were saying we've got a problem here rather than actually taking quick action. You really can see how China's problems can impact the world much more than they did uh, a half century ago. Well, I guess now that I've talked you into being as unreasonably grim as I am, David, we should just leave it there. Fair enough. Fair enough. And now it's time for our weekly recommendation, when we make a suggestion that is meant to take your mind off of the grim news of the day. Michelle, this week is your turn. I'm not sure if you have cold remedies or something else for us, but what is your recommendation? Well, it's not necessarily going to take your mind off the grim news of the day, but um, a couple of weeks ago I was working on this piece that I was calling The End of the Future. I think it ended up being called The Darkness Where the Future Should Be. And there was a book I read for that piece, which is um, the new memoir, Uncanny Valley, by Anna Weiner. It's a memoir of a young woman who goes to work in the tech industry and at first sort of half buys into the utopian culture around Silicon Valley and gradually becomes more jaded as the pernicious effects of Silicon Valley become more and more manifest in the world. And so it's just like a really, really compelling kind of coming-of-age book that feels very zeitgeisty, but also penetrating look at the hubris and sort of like self-mythologizing around all of these big technology companies that are now, in addition to breaking the entire world, have also now broken the Iowa caucuses. Independent of the utter destruction of human flourishing being visited on the world by Silicon Valley, I'm very sort of curious slash fascinated by the gender dynamics. I mean, how is there is does the book? Yeah. And the I mean, the book is actually the book is actually pretty um, startling in how bad it is to be a young woman at these companies. I mean, I think that there's this idea out there that all of these companies are kind of bending over backwards to be politically correct. And I think what one of the things that you see, at least through her eyes, is that the definition of politically correct just means, you know, kind of not rampant sexual harassment and pay disparities and, you know, gender race put downs. And then you kind of see the extreme resentment um, bubbling up of men who have to, you know, abide by even these sort of minimal standards of even gesture to gender equality or gesture to a non-hostile workplace. Um, And one of the themes of the book is that you sort of see the alt-right start to bubble up in these various message boards that she's on, you know, before. And you kind of understand, you know, in this horror movie kind of way, just how big it's going to become and just how politically influential it's going to become in a way that she, the character, doesn't. Michelle, what's the recommendation? The book is Uncanny Valley by Anna Weiner. Thank you. That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you have thoughts or questions, please leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. 
You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show was produced by Maddie Foley and James T. Green for Transmitter Media and edited by Sarah Nix. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help, as we always do, from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Ian Prasad Philbrick, and Francis Ying. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. We'll see you back here next week. could not invent a fiasco more calculated to illustrate, for instance, Michelle's anxieties about how sort of lousy technology and institutional failure are intersecting. I mean, we've got this app that comes from these companies named Shadow and Acronym. Like, it's just, <laughs> I mean, it's just absurd. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.